Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Farfetch Fables. Welcome to show number 34. I'm your interim host, Mark Zanfordino, sitting in for our regular host, Nicholas Eaton clark This week, we have two stories from two very different authors. Our first story is The Last Worders by Karen Joy Fowler. Ms. Fowler is the author of six novels and three short story collections. Her 2004 novel, The Jane Austen Book Club, spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was a New York Times notable book. A film adaptation was released in autumn 2007. Fowler's previous novel, Sister Noon, was a finalist for the 2001 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Her debut novel, Sarah Canary, was also a New York Times notable book, along with her second novel, The Sweetheart Season. Sarah Canary also won the Commonwealth Medal for Best First Novel by a Californian, and was listed for the Irish Times International Fiction Prize as well as the Bay Area Book Reviewers Prize. Karen's short story collection, Black Glass, won the World Fantasy Award in 1999, and her collection, What I Didn't See, won the World Fantasy Award in 2011. She and her husband, who have two grown children and five grandchildren, live in Santa Cruz, California. She is the co-founder of the James Triptree Jr. Award and is the current president of the Clarion Foundation, also known as Clarion San Diego. You can find her online at karenjoyfowler.com. Links, as always, can be found on the Triple F website. The Last Worders is narrated for us today by Sarah Fredrickson. Sarah was born in Oregon in the United States and was raised in beautiful Minnesota. Sarah spent most of her childhood singing and acting, both on stage and off, and affecting various accents for fun. She soon found herself competing in local, state, and national forensics competition. That's competitive speaking. I had to look that up. Her experience in awards landed her a forensic scholarship to Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she continues to compete as well as train other speakers at the college level. Sarah graduated with a degree in music business and audio production. Shortly after graduation, she traveled to Australia for a one-year holiday. 
During that time, she became smitten with an Australian man who asked her to stay, and four years later the couple live and work in Australia, going on adventures, writing music, and reading stories to their cat. And so, without further ado, here is The Last Worders by Karen Joy Fowler. Charlotta was asleep in the dining car when the train arrived in San Marguerite. It was tempting to just leave her behind. And I tried to tell myself this wasn't a mean thought, but came to me because I, myself, might want to be left like that, just for the adventure of it. I might want to wake up hours later and miles away, bewildered and alone. I am always on the lookout for those parts of my life that could be the first scene in a movie. Of course you could start a movie anywhere, but you wouldn't. That's my point. And so this impulse had nothing to do with the way Charlotta had begun to get on my last nerve. That's my other point. If I thought being ditched would be sort of exciting, then so did Charlotta. We felt the same about everything. Charlotta, I said. Charlotta, we're here. I was on my feet grabbing my backpack when the train actually stopped. This threw me into the arms of a boy of about fourteen, wearing a t-shirt from the Three Mountains soccer camp. It was nice of him to catch me. I probably wouldn't have done that when I was fourteen. What's one tourist, more or less? I tried to say some of this to Charlotta when we were on the platform, and the train was already puffing fainter and fainter in the distance, winding its way like a great worm up into the Rambles Mountains. The boy hadn't gotten off with us. It was raining, and we tented our heads with our jackets. He was probably picking your pocket, Charlotta said. Do you still have your wallet? Which made me feel I'd been a fool, but when I put my hand in to check, I found, instead of taking something out, he'd put something in. I pulled out an orange piece of paper folded like a fan. When opened, flattened, it was a flyer in four languages— German, Japanese, French, and English. Open mic, the English part said. And then, come to the last word cafe. One hundred ruta de los esclavos. By the river. First drink free. Poetry slam. To the death. The rain erased the words even as we read them. No city listed, Charlotta noted. She had taken the paper from me to look more closely. Now it was blank and limp. She refolded it carefully so it wouldn't tear, and put it in the back pocket of her pants. Anyway, it can't be here. The town of San Marguerite hangs on the edge of a deep chasm. There'd been a river once. We had a geological witness. We had the historical records. But there was no river now. And no date for the slam, Charlotta added. And we don't think fast on our feet. And death? That's not very appealing. If she'd made only one objection, then she'd no interest. Ditto if she made two. But three was defensive. Four was obsessive. Four meant that if Charlotta could ever find the last word cafe, she was definitely going. Just because I'd been invited and she hadn't. Try to keep her out. I know this is what she felt, because it's what I would have felt. 
we took a room in a private house on the edge of the gorge. We had planned to lodge in the city center, more convenient to everything, but we were tired and we wanted to get out of the rain. The guidebook said this place was cheap and clean. It was 10.30 in the morning, and the proprietress was still in her nightgown. She was a woman of about 50, and the loss of her two front teeth had left a small dip in her upper lip. Her nightgown was imprinted with angels wearing choir robes and halos on sticks like balloons. She spoke little English. There was a lot of pointing, most of it upwards. Then we had to follow her angel butt up three flights of ladders, hauling our heavy packs. The room was large and had its own sink. There were glass doors opening to a balcony, rain sheeting down. If you looked out, there was nothing to see. Steep nothing. Gray nothing. The dizzying null of the gorge. "'You can have the bed by the doors,' Charlotta offered. She was already moved in, toweling her hair. "'You,' I said. "'I was nobody's fool.' Charlotta sang, "'It is scary in my airy.' "'Poetry?' the proprietress asked. Her dimpled lip curled slightly. She didn't have to speak the language to know bad poetry when she heard it, that lip said. "'Yes,' Charlotta said. "'Yes. The last word café is where?' "'No,' she answered. "'Maybe she'd misunderstood us. Maybe we'd misunderstood her.' A few facts about the gorge. The gorge is very deep and very narrow. A thousand years ago, a staircase was cut into the interior of the cliff. According to our guidebook, there are 839 stone steps, all worn smooth by traffic. Back when the stairs were made, there was still a river. Slaves carried water from the river up the stairs to the town. They did this all day long down with an empty clay pitcher, up with a full one. And then different slaves carried water all during the night. The slave owners were noted for their poetry and their cleanliness. They wrote formal erotic poems about how dirty their slaves were. One day there was an uprising. The slaves on the stairs knew nothing about it. They had their pitchers. They had the long way down and the longer way up. Slaves from the town ex-slaves now, stood at the top and told each one as he or she arrived that he or she was free. Some of the slaves poured their water out onto the stone steps to prove this to themselves. Some emptied their pitchers into the cistern as usual, thinking to have a nice bath later. Later all the pitchers were given to the former slave owners, who now were slaves, and had to carry water up from the river all day or all night. Still later, there was resentment between the town slaves, who had taken all the risks and made all the plans, and the stair slaves who were handed their freedom. The least grateful of the latter were sent back to the stairs. Two or three hundred years after the uprising, there was no more water. Over many generations, the slaves had finally emptied the river. To honor their long labors and memory of a job well done, Slavery was abolished in San Marguerite. There is a holiday to commemorate this every year on May 21st. May 21st is also our birthday, mine and Charlotta's. Let's not make too much of that.
among the many factions in San Margueus was one that felt there was nothing to celebrate in having once had a river and now not having one. Many bitter poems have been written on this subject, all entitled May 21st. The shower in our pension was excellent, the water hot and hard. Charlotta reported this to me. Since I got my choice of bed, she got the first shower. We'd been making these sorts of calculations all our lives. It kept us in balance. As long as everyone played. We were not in San Margueus for the poetry. Five years before, while we were still in high school, Charlotta and I had fallen in love with the same boy. His name was Raphael Kaplinsky. He had an accent. South African, and a motorcycle, American. I saw him first, Charlotta said, which was true. He was in her second period world lit class. I hadn't seen him until fifth period chemistry. I spoke to him first, though. Is it supposed to be this color? I'd asked when we were testing for acids. He spoke to me first, Charlotta said which was also true, since he'd answered my acid question with a shrug, and then, several days later, said nice boots to Charlotta when she came to school in calf-high red Steve Maddens. My red Steve Maddens. We quarreled about Raphael for weeks without settling anything. We didn't speak to each other for days at a time. All the while, Raphael dated other girls. Loose and easy Deirdre, bookish Kathy, spiritual, ethereal Nina, Junko, the Japanese foreign exchange student. Eventually, Charlotta and I agreed that we would both give Raphael up. Charlotta made the offer, but I'd been planning the same. I matched it instantly. There was simply no other way. We met in the yard to formalize the agreement with a ceremony. Each of us wrote the words, Ms. Raphael Weldon Kaplinsky, onto a piece of paper. Then we simultaneously tore our papers into twelve little bits. We threw the bits into the fish pond and watched the carp eat them. I knew that Charlotta would honor our agreement. I knew this because I intended to do so. When we were little, when we were just learning to talk, Mother says Charlotta and I had a secret language. She could watch us, toe-headed two-year-olds, talking to each other, and she could tell that we knew exactly what we were saying, even if she didn't. Sometimes, after telling each other a long story, we would cry. One of us would start, and the other would sit struggling for a moment, lip-trembling, and eventually we would both be in tears. There was a graduate student in psychology interested in studying this, but we learned English and stopped speaking our secret language before he could get his grant money together. Mother favors Charlotta. I'm not the only one to think so. Charlotta sees it, too. Mother has learned that it's simply not possible to treat two people with equal love. She would argue that she favors us both. Sometimes Charlotta, sometimes me. She would say it all equals out in the end. Maybe she's right. It isn't equal yet, but it probably hasn't ended. Some facts from our guidebook about the San Margius Civil War. 
1932-37. The underlying issues were aesthetic and economic. The trigger was an assassination. In the Middle Ages, San Marguerite was a city-state ruled by a hereditary clergy. Even after annexation, the clergy played the dominant political role. Fernando came to power in the 1920s during an important poetic revival known as the Marguerite movement. Its premier voice was the great epistemological poet, Gaigo. Fernando believed in the lessons of history. Geigel believed in the natural cadence of the street, the impenetrable nature of truth. From day one, these two were headed for a showdown. Still for a few years, all was politeness. Geigel received many grants and honors from the Nando regime. She was given a commission to write a poem celebrating Fernando's 70th birthday. Yes, I remember. Geigel's poem begins, in translation, the great cloud of dragonflies grazing the lake. If Fernando's name appeared only in the dedication, at least this was accessible stuff, nostalgic even, elegaic. Geigo was never nostalgic. Geigo was never elegaic. To be so now expressed only her deep contempt for Fernando, but it was also very rhythmical. He was completely taken in. Fernando set the first two lines in stone over the entrance to the city-state library and invited Geigo to be his special guest at the unveiling. The nature of the word is not the nature of the stone, Geigo said at the ceremony when it was her turn to speak. This was also accessible. Fernando went red in the face as if he'd been slapped, one hand to each cheek. A cartel of businessmen, angry over the graduated tariff system Nando had instituted, saw the opportunity to assassinate him and have the poets blamed. Geigo was killed at a reading the same night Fernando was laid in state in the Cathedral Nacionales. Her last words were, Blind hill, grave glass, which is all anyone could have hoped. Unless she said grave grass, and one of her acolytes changed her words in the reporting, as her detractors have alleged. Anyone could think up grave grass, especially if they were dying at the time. All that remains for certain of Geigo's work are the contemptuous two lines in stone. The Margeus movement was outlawed, its poems systematically searched out and destroyed, Attempts were made to memorize the greatest of Geigo's verses, but these had been written so as to defy memorization. A phrase here and there, much contested, survives. Nothing that suggests genius. All the books by or about the Margais movement were burned. All the poets were imprisoned and tortured until they couldn't remember their own names, much less their own words. There is a narrow bridge across the gorge that Charlotta can see from the doors by her bed. During the Civil War, people were thrown from that bridge. There is still a handful of old men and old women here who will tell you they remember seeing that. Raphael Kaplinsky went to our high school for only one year. We told ourselves it was good we hadn't destroyed our relationship for so short a reward. We dated other boys boys neither of us liked.
the flaws in our reasoning began to come clear. 1. Raphael Kaplinsky was ardent and oracular. You didn't meet a boy like Raphael Kaplinsky in every world lit, every chemistry class you took. He was the very first person to use the word later to end a conversation. Using the word later in this particular way was a promise. It was nothing less than messianic. Number two. What if we did, someday, meet a boy we liked as much as Raphael? We were both bound to like him exactly the same. We hadn't solved our problem so much as delayed it. We were doomed to a lifetime of each otherness until we came up with a different plan. We hired an internet detective to find Raphael, and he uncovered a recent credit card trail. We had followed this trail all the way to last Sunday in San Marguerite. We had come to San Marguerite to make him choose between us. It was raining too hard to go out. Plus, we'd spent the night sitting up on the train. We hadn't been able to sit together, and had had a drunk on one side, Charlotta's, and a shoebox of mice on the other, mine. The mice were headed to the snake pit at the state zoo. There was no way to sleep while their little paws scrabbled desperately, fruitlessly against the cardboard. I had an impulse to set them free, but it seemed unfair to the snakes. How often in this world are we unwillingly forced to take sides? Team mouse or team snake? Team fly or team spider? Charlotta and I napped during the afternoon while the glass rattled in the door frames and the rain fell. I woke up when I was too hungry to sleep. I've got to have something to eat, Charlotta said. The cuisine of San Margueus is nothing to write home about. Charlotta and I each bought an umbrella from a street peddler and ate in a small, dark pizzeria. It was not only wet outside, but cold. The pizzeria had a large oven, which made the room pleasant to linger in, even though there was a group of Italian tourists smoking across the way. Charlotta and I had a policy never to order the same thing off a menu. This was hard, because the same thing always sounded good to both of us, but it doubled our chances of making the right choice. Charlotta ordered a pizza called El Diablo, which was all theater and annoyed me, as we don't like hot foods. El Diablo brought tears to her eyes, and she only ate one piece, picking the olives off the rest, and then helping herself to several slices of mine. She wiped her face with a napkin, which left a rakish streak of pizza sauce on her cheek. I was irritated enough to say nothing about this. One of the Italians made his way to our table. So, he said with no preliminaries, American, yes? I can kiss you? We were nothing if not patriots. Charlotta stood at once, moved into his arms, and I saw his tongue go into her mouth. They kissed for several seconds, then Charlotta pushed him away, and now the pizza sauce was on him. So, she said, now, we need directions to the closest internet café. The Italian drew a map on her placemat. He drew well. His map had depth and perspective. The internet café appeared to be around many corners and up many flights of stairs. The Italian decorated his map with hopeful little hearts. Charlotta took it away from him, or there surely would have been more of these. The San Marguerite Miracle 
an anecdotal account. About ten years ago, a little boy named Bastien Brunel was crossing the central plaza when he noticed something strange on the face of the statue of Fernando. He looked more closely. Fernando was crying large, milky tears. Bastien ran home to tell his parents. The night before, Bastien's father had had a dream. In his dream, he was old and crippled, twisted up like a licorice stick. In his dream, he had a dream that told him to go and bathe in the river. He woke from the dream dream and made his slow, painful way down 839 steps. At the bottom of the gorge, he waited. He heard a noise in the distance cars on a freeway. The river acted like a train and stopped to let him in. Bastian's father woke up and was 32 again, which was his proper age. When he heard about the statue, Bastian's father remembered the dream. He followed Bastian out to the square where a crowd was gathering, growing. Fernando is crying for the river, Bastian's father told the crowd. It is a sign to us. We have to put the river back. Bastian's father had never been a community leader. He ran a small civil war museum for tourists, filled with fake Geigo poems. And rarely bought a round for the house when he went out drinking. But now he had all the conviction of a man who sees clearly amidst the men who are confused. He organized a brigade to carry water down the steps to the bottom of the gorge, and his purpose was so absolute, so inspired were his words, that people volunteered their spare hours, their children's spare hours. They signed up for slots in his schedule and carried water down the stairs for almost a week. Before they all lost interest and remembered Bastian's father was not the mouth of God, but a tight ass cheat. By this time, news of the crying statue had gone out on the internet. Scientists had performed examinations. Fakery cannot be ruled out, one said, which transformed into the headline No sign of fakery. Pilgrims began to arrive from wealthy European countries. Mostly college kids with buckets, thermoses, used Starbucks cups. They would stay two or three days, two or three weeks, hauling water down, having visions on the stairs, and sex. And then that ended too. Every time has its task. Ours is to digitalize the world's libraries. This is a big job that will take generations to complete, like the pyramids. No time for filling gorges with water. Live lightly on the earth, the pilgrims remembered. Leave no footprint behind. And they all went home again. Or at least they left San Marguerite. On odd days of the week, our people finder detective emailed Charlotta and copied me. On even, the opposite. Two days earlier, Raphael had bought a hat and four postcards. He had dinner at a pricey restaurante and got a $50 cash advance. That was Charlotta's email. Mine said that this very night he was buying 15 beers at the Last Word Cafe, San Marguerite. We googled that name to a single entry. 100 Ruta de los Esclavos, by the river, it said. Open mic, underground music and poetry nightly. There were other Americans using the computers. I walked through asking if any of them knew how to get to the Last Word Cafe. 
Turuto de los Esclavos. They were paying by the minute. Most of them didn't look up. Those that did shook their heads. Charlotta and I opened our umbrellas and went back out into the rain. We asked directions from everyone we saw, but very few people were on the street. They didn't know English, or they disliked being accosted by tourists, or they didn't like the look of our face. They hurried by without speaking. Only a single woman stopped. She took my chin in her hand to make sure she had my full attention. Her eyes were tinged in yellow, and she smelled like Irish spring soap. No, she said firmly. Me entiendes? No, for you. We walked along the gorge, because this was the closest thing San Margueus had to a river. On one side of us the town. The big yellow eye of tourist information closed indefinitely. Shops of ceramics and cheeses, postcards, law offices, podiatrists, pubs, our own pension. On the other side the cliff face. The air. We crossed the narrow bridge, and when we came to the 839 steps, we started down them just because they were mostly inside the cliff, and therefore covered, and therefore dry. I was the one to point these things out to Charlotta. I was the one to say we should go down. The steps were smooth and slippery. Each one had a dip in the center in just that place where a slave was most likely to put his, or her, foot. Water dripped from the walls around us, but we were able to close our umbrellas, leave them at the top to be picked up later. For the first stretch there were lights overhead. Then we were in darkness, except for an occasional turn, which brought an occasional opening to the outside. A little light could carry us a long way. We descended maybe three hundred steps, and then, by one of the openings, we met an American coming up. In age, she was somewhere in that long, unidentifiable stretch from twenty-two to thirty-five. She was carrying an empty bucket, plastic, the sort a child takes to the seashore. She was breathless from the climb. She stopped beside us, and we waited until she was able to speak. "'What the fuck?' she said finally. "'Is the point of going down empty-handed?' What the fuck is the point of view? Charlotta had been asking sort of the same thing. What was the point of going all the way down the stairs? Why had she let me talk her into it? She talked me into going back. We turned and followed the angry American up and out into the rain. It was only three hundred steps. But when we'd done them, we were winded and exhausted. We went to our room crawled up our three ladders, and landed in a deep, dispirited sleep. It was still raining the next morning. We went to the city center and breakfasted in a little bakery. Just as we were finishing, our Italian walked in. We kiss more, yes? he asked me. He'd mistaken me for Charlotta. I stood up. I was always having to do her chores. His tongue ranged through my mouth as if he were looking for scraps. I tasted cigarettes, gum, things left in ashtrays. So, I said, pushing him away. Now, we need directions to the last word cafe. And it turned out we'd almost gotten there last night after all. The last word was the last stop along the 839 steps.
It seemed as if I'd known this. Our Italian said he'd been there the night before. No one named Raphael had taken the mic. He was sure of this. But he thought there might have been a South African at the bar. Possibly the South African had bought him a drink. It was a very crowded room. No one had died. That was just, how is it we Americans say, poem license? Raphael probably wanted to get the feel of the place before he spoke, Charlotta said. That's what I'd do. And me. That's what I'd do, too. There was no point in going back before dark. We checked our email, but he was apparently still living on the cash advance. Nothing had been added since the last word last night. We decided to spend the day as tourists, thinking Raphael might do the same. Because of the rain, we had the outdoor sights mostly to ourselves. We saw the ruins of the old baths, long and narrow as lap pools, now with nets of morning glories twisted across them. Here and there rain had filled them. There was a Roman arch, a Moorish garden. When we were wetter than we could bear, we paid the eight euros entrance to the Civil War Museum. English translation was extra, but we were on a budget. There are no bargains on last-minute tickets to San Marguerite. We told ourselves it was more in keeping with the spirit of Geigo if we didn't understand a thing. The museum was small, two rooms only, and dimly lit. We stood a while beside the wall radiator, drying out and warming up. Even from that spot we could see most of the room we were in. There were three life-size dioramas, mannequins, dressed as Geigo might have dressed, meeting with people Geigo might have met. We recognized the mannequin Fernando from the statue we'd seen in the city center, although this version was less friendly. His hand was on Geigo's shoulder, his expression enigmatic. She was looking past him, up at something tall and transcendent. There was clothing laid out, male and female, in glass cases along with playbills, baptismal certificates, baby pictures. Stapled to the wall were a series of book illustrations, a bandito seizing a woman on a balcony, the woman shaking free, leaping to her death. A story Geigel had written? A family legend? A scene from the Civil War? All of the above? The man who sold us our tickets, Signor Brunel, was conducting a tour for an elderly British couple. But since we hadn't paid, it would be wrong to stand where we could hear. We were careful not to do so. We spoke to Signor Brunel after. We made polite noises about the museum. So interesting, we said. So unexpected. And then Charlotta asked him what he knew about the last word cafe. For tourists, he said. Myself, my family, we don't go down the steps any more. He was clearly sad about this. All tourists now. What does it mean? Charlotta asked first. Poetry to the death? Which word needs definition? Poetry or death? I know the words. Then I am no more help, Signor Brunel told her. Why does it say it's by the river when there's no river? Charlotta asked second. Always a river. And San Marguez? Always a river. Sometimes in your mind. Sometimes in the gorge. Either way, a river. Is there any reason we shouldn't go? Charlotta asked third. 
Go. You go. You won't get in, Signor Brunel said. He said this to Charlotta. He didn't say it to me. The Last Worders On the night Raphael took the open mic at the Last Word Café, he did three poems. He spoke ten minutes. He stood on the stage, and he didn't try to move. He didn't try to make it sing. He made no effort to sell his words. The light fell in a small circle on his face, so that, most of the time, his eyes were closed. He was beautiful. The people listening also closed their eyes, and that made him more beautiful still. The women, the men who'd wanted him when he started to talk, no longer did so. He was beyond that, unfuckable. For the rest of their lives, they'd be undone by the mere sound of his name. The ones who spoke English tried to write down some part of what he'd said on their napkins, in their travel journals. They made lists of words. Childhood. Ice. Yes. Gleaming. Yes. Yesterday. These are the facts. Anyone can figure out this much. For the rest, you had to be there. What was heard, the things people suddenly knew, the things people suddenly felt, none of that could be said in any way that could be passed along. By the time Raphael had finished, everyone listening, everyone there for those few minutes on that night in the Last Word Café, had been set free. These people climbed the steps afterwards in absolute silence. They did not go back, not a single one of them, to their marriages, their families, their jobs, their lives. They walked to the city center and they sat in the square on the edge of the fountain at the feet of the friendly Fernando. And they knew where they were in a way they had never known it before. They tried to talk about what to do next. Words came back to them slowly. Between them they spoke a dozen different languages. All useless now. You could have started the movie of any one of them there at the feet of the stone statue. It didn't matter what they could and couldn't say. They all knew the situation. Whatever they did next would be done together. They could not imagine, ever again, being with anyone who had not been there in the Last Word Café on the night Raphael Kaplinsky spoke. There were details to be ironed out. How to get the money to eat, where to live, where to sleep, how to survive now in a suddenly clueless world. But there was time to make these decisions. Those who had cars fetched them. Those who did not climbed in, fastened their seatbelts. On the night Raphael Kaplinsky spoke at the Last Word Café, the patrons caravaned out of town without a last word to anyone. The rest of us would not hear of the last worders again until one of them went on Larry King Live and filled a two-hour show with a two-hour silence. Or else they all died. 
Charlotta and I had dinner by ourselves in the converted basement of an old hotel. The candles flickered our shadows about, so we were, on all sides, surrounded by us. Charlotta had the trout. It had been cooked dry and was filled with small bones. Every time she put a bite in her mouth, she pulled the tiny bones out. I had the mussels. The sauce was stiff and gluey. Most of the shells hadn't opened. The food in San Marguerites is nothing to write home about. We finished the meal with old apples and young wine. We were both nervous, now that it came down to it, about seeing Raphael again. Each of us secretly wondered, could we live with Raphael's choice? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. However it went, could I be happy for Charlotta if it came to that? I asked myself. Could I bear watching her forced to be happy for me? I sipped my wine and ran through every moment of my relationship with Raphael for reassurance. That stuff about the acid experiment, how much he liked my boots. Let's go, Charlotta said and we were a bit unsteady from the wine, which, in retrospect, with an evening of 839 steps ahead of us, was not smart. We crossed the bridge in a high wind. The rain came in sideways. The wind turned our umbrellas inside out. Charlotta was thrown against the rope rails and grabbed on to me. If she'd fallen, she would have taken me with her. If I saved her, I saved us both. Our umbrellas went together into the gorge. We reached the steps and began to descend, sometimes with light, sometimes feeling our way in the darkness. About one hundred steps up from the bottom, a room had been carved out of the rock. Once slave owners had sat at their leisure there, washing and re-washing their hands and feet, overseeing the slaves on the stairs. Later the room had been closed off with the addition of a heavy metal door. A posting had been set on a sawhorse outside. The last word cafe, the English part of it said. Not for everyone. The door was latched. Charlotta pounded on it with her fist until it opened. A man in a tuxedo with a wide orange cummerbund stepped out. He shook his head. 
American?' he asked. "'And empty-handed? That is no way to make a river.' "'We're here for the poetry,' Charlotta told him, and he shook his head again. "'Invitation only.' And Charlotta reached into the back pocket of her pants. Charlotta pulled out the orange paper given to me by the boy on the train. The man took it. He threw it into a small bucket with many other such papers. He stood aside and let Charlotta enter. He stepped back to block me. Invitation only. That was my invitation, I told him. Charlotta! She looked back at me over her shoulder without really turning around. Tell him! Tell him that invitation was for me. Tell him how Signor Brunel told you you wouldn't get in. So, said Charlotta, that woman on the street told you you wouldn't get in. But I had figured that part out. She mistook you for me, I said. Beyond the door, I could see Raphael climbing onto the dais. I could hear the room growing silent. I could see Charlotta's back sliding into a crowd of people like a knife into water. The door swung toward my face. The latch fell. I stayed a long time by that door, but no sounds came through. Finally, I walked down the last hundred steps. I was alone at the bottom of the gorge, where the rain fell and fell, and there was no river. I would never have done to Charlotta what she had done to me. It took me more than an hour to climb back up. I had to stop many, many times to rest. Airless, heart-throbbing, legs aching, light-headed in the dark. No one met me at the top. Wow, what can I say? The idea of a poetry slam to the death is a fun one, but it's really the ambiguity of the relationship between these two young women, and of a riverless city defined by its non-existent river that pulled me into the story. Our second story is Tales from the City of Seams by Greg Van Eekhout. Mr. Van Eekhout writes fiction for adults and kids. His works include the California Bones contemporary fantasy series, starting with the eponymous novel California Bones, and continuing in January with Pacific Fire. His other books are The Boy at the End of the World, Kid vs. Squid, and Norse Code. Greg lives in San Diego, a region I'm intimately familiar with, and actively trolls the beach for weird creatures. You can find him online at Writing and Snacks at writingandsnacks.com and tweet him at at Greg Van Eekhout. Links to both can be found in the show notes on the Triple F website. Tales from the City of Seams is read for us by Anthony Babington. Anthony is a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. And now, Tales from the City of Seams by Greg Van Eekhout. Lover's Lookout In the hills above the city, among the ruins of the old zoo, the kids come to screw. 
They cage themselves inside the animal enclosures and kick away the cigarette butts and the crushed beer cans and the brittle snakeskin condoms, and then, with the city glittering below them, they fill the hot smog nights with their whispers. They are not alone. There is a sort of cave in the hillside behind the picnic grounds. It used to be the bear grotto, but over the decades the cave has grown deeper. It goes far back now, and down. Over the grotto's entrance hangs a sign that says something to the effect of Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Understandably, this gives the dead pause. They tend to linger here. Hearing the sighs and groans of the living young, the dead get ideas. They shed their frail uniforms and gossamer business suits and wispy clubwear. They strip down to silver moon flesh and lie in the grass one final time. Like all lovers' lanes and modern ruins, the old zoo accumulates stories. One of these tales is that, when the zoo was shut down some three generations ago, most of the animals were sold to circuses and other zoos and private collections. A few escaped, however. There are jaguars in the hills, it is said, and vultures, and kudu. Sometimes at night, when the zoo reaches its height of passion, hyenas yowl in ghostly sympathy. Or so the tales go. But the dead are wise, and they know these stories for the urban legends they are. They know that the cries aren't from the descendants of escaped animals. No, the cries are from the living, unknowingly exhorting the dead to abandon, but not to abandon hope. Chinatown When I worked for a plumbing supply wholesaler in Chinatown, the best part of my day was lunch. I'd walk by the window displays of tobacco-colored ducks strung up by their necks, the scents of grease and ginger trying to draw me in. But I was like a man passing a row of prostitutes without interest, secure in the knowledge that a more desirable lover awaits him at home. Lady Shea's Golden Crown Café was my destination, the only place in town where you could get a bowl of soup that had been simmering for a thousand years. A thousand years was actually a bit of an exaggeration, a forgivable fib of marketing. Truthfully, the thousand-year soup had been cooking in its pot for only eight centuries, born in the latter days of Genghis Khan. The great Mongol warlord had been displeased by a subordinate, one Lu Chang-Huan, in some small way forgotten to history although the most recent Lady Shea once suggested to me it had something to do with a concubine, a canary, and a paintbrush. Wishing to discipline Lu Cheng Huan, the Khan had his head removed and boiled in a golden pot. The Khan kept the skull as a trophy, but, not realizing Lu Cheng Huan was a sorcerer, permitted Lu's wife to claim the pot, the water, and the gray film floating on top. After taking it back to her home village, she added salt, leeks, onions, and garlic, and made a soup of her beloved husband's dissolved head. Every day she would add some more water, more vegetables and seasoning, and thus the soup was kept going. Hundreds of years later, when Lou's descendants came to American shores, they brought the soup with them, keeping vigil over the cook fires on the deck of the brig Prometheus. I had no idea how much of that was true, but the soup tasted wonderful and kept me cold free, and Lady Shea, her actual name was Michelle, charged only three bucks a bowl, one day, as I sat in the restaurant, savoring my lunch, a man in an ivory suit came into the place. His head was as white and hairless as an eggshell, and when he spoke, every syllable came out in an odd shape. I think he was Belgian. Daughter of Lu Chenghuan, far removed, he said. I have grown impatient with your truculence. I have dealt with you in good faith. I have offered you riches, gems and antiques, properties and estates, significant shares and profitable concerns. But you have mistaken my generosity for desperation, and if you will not part with the soup in a fair exchange, I shall have to take it by force. 
Michelle Shea was over at a corner table, taking care of some accounting matters. Get lost, she said. The white man smiled tightly, his blue eyes darkened as though glazed over by a layer of ice. Boys, he said, and, on cue, two men entered the restaurant and stood behind him. Their faces were broad, with mouths so wide their lips seemed to curve back behind their huge ears. Long-fingered hands twitched down low near their bowed knees. I somehow knew that these were not true men, but monkeys grown and reshaped to pass as men. They leered at Michel Shea, rocking on their strange short legs. Michel Shea barely glanced up at them. Brothers, she said, and five men came out of the kitchen. They stood shoulder to shoulder, forming a wall. To get to my soup, Michel said, you will have to overcome my brothers. This will be more difficult than you might suppose. First brother is like stone, his flesh cannot be penetrated. Second brother has the strength of ten men concentrated in his right hand. Third brother is tireless and needs neither food nor water, neither sleep nor breath. Fourth brother can outrun a horse, a hawk, an arrow shot from a bow. Fifth brother, though he still walks among us, is already dead and cannot be harmed. Sixth brother can see a moth twitch its antennae from a hundred miles away. Seventh brother can hear the creak and groan of grass growing. Michelle wrote something on her spreadsheet. Let's see your monkeys get past them. The white man smiled as though Michelle Shea had said something cute but stupid, and then his smile faltered. Wait a minute. Seven brothers? I count only five. Yes. Sixth and seventh brothers took the soup out the back door as I was introducing you to first through fifth. She scratched out something on the spreadsheet. Then you are defeated, the white man said, for I had more monkeys posted in the alley. Yes, Michelle said and eighth brother of the poison touch took care of them. Ah, said the white man, shutting his eyes. He rubbed the bridge of his nose. Ah. A silence followed. One of the monkeys scratched its ass and sniffed its fingers. Well then, the white man said, finally, another day. Another day, Michelle agreed. And the white man took his leave with all the straight-backed dignity he could muster in the face of his setback his monkeys ook-ooking behind him with disappointment and confusion. The brothers stood around grinning at one another for a few moments until Michelle snapped at them to go back to work. Chagrined, they filed back into the kitchen. I tipped my bowl to drink the last of my soup. That turned out pretty well, I said. She released a long, sad sigh. Not really. We've been here for three generations, but now we're done with this city. We'll have to move the restaurant. I choked on the broth. Move? But why? Your brothers... The Belgian will be back, and he can make monkeys faster than I can make brothers. So we move. She got up and flipped the open sign to closed. But where will you go? I asked, knowing I wouldn't like the answer. Far away, across one ocean, perhaps two. Now, if you'll excuse me, sir, you've been a good customer, but I do have some arrangements to make. And that was it. By the very next day, Lady Shea's Golden Crown Café had been abandoned. A week later, a donut shop had replaced it. It took me months to find another regular lunch place, but I eventually settled on a Texas barbecue joint on the South 400 block of Milton. Their secret lay in the heated rocks that lined the bottom of the barbecue pit, brought here by way of Texas and Mexico. They were fragments of an Aztec pyramid that had been splashed with the blood of more than a thousand human sacrifices. The ribs are pretty good but I'm more a fan of the pulled pork sandwich.
Harbor District. I walked along the row of aquariums and pressed my nose against miniature worlds. Treasure chests spewed bubbles, skeletal pirates gripped ship wheels, fish nipped pink rocks. Please don't tap the glass, the sign said, so I refrained. My kid's birthday was coming up. I'd been thinking about giving him an ant farm, but changed my mind and decided he could do with some fish. When ants get out, you've got them all over the house. When fish get out, they die. Lots of arguments in favor of fish. The only question was, what kind? I had it in my head that goldfish die as soon as you get them home. They're programmed that way, with this little chip inside their belly that somehow knows the second you've got them through the door, and then, zap, time to meet the tidy bowl man. The shop was dark, hot, and moist. Humming and gurgling filled the air. It was hard to breathe, and I loosened my tie. So many weird fish. Ear-spot angels, convict tangs, chevroned butterflies, clown knives, blue-sided fairy wrasses. Near the back of the store I paused before a ten-gallon tank with a porcelain castle. There was something different about the fish inside. About as long as my thumb, they weren't covered in scales, but rather emerald-bright skin from their midsections to their tails which ended in horizontal flukes, like a dolphin's. From the midsection forward, they were human-shaped, brown-skinned, with long, graceful arms, round breasts with little pencil-dot nipples, long, flowing black hair. Their eyes were like tiny diamond chips. "'Hey, what are these?' I called to the front of the store. The shopkeeper, a tall hippie with blurred U.S. Navy tattoo on his left arm, sauntered over to me. "'Mermaids,' he said. "'Pretty rare.' I spent a moment watching them swim. One broke the surface, arching her back and stretching. Another swam up to her and started braiding her hair. I felt a slight twitch in my crotch. "'How much?' Forty each,' he said, with a tone of someone trying to conceal the sound of hope in his voice. "'And they go as a group.' There were six mermaids in the tank. "'Okay,' I said. "'I'll just take a couple of those Siamese fighting fish in the front of the store. "'More than one, they'll kill each other. "'That's why they call them fighting fish.' I got out my wallet. How about three goldfish? As it turned out, my kid was pretty happy with his gift. I got him a nice little tank, some plastic plants for decoration, and only one of the goldfish died before we could get it all set up. It was nice to see him learning to take care of something, making sure the water didn't get too grimy, feeding the fish just the right pinch. I enjoyed going into his room when he was over at a friend's or at his mom's. I'd sit on the bed and watch the fish go back and forth. I could stare at them for hours. It was fun. Better than TV. I figured the kid might enjoy some more fish, so I went back to the shop. The mermaids didn't look so good now. Their green tails were the color of wilted lettuce, and their hair was patchy, showing too much scalp. Their eyes had grown red, and one of the mermaids was gone. There were only five now. Taped to the glass was a handwritten sign. Fifty percent off. Ask at counter. Please don't tap on the glass. I saw the shopkeeper's reflection in the tank, and I turned around. What's wrong with them? I asked. You're really not supposed to break up the group, he said sheepishly. But, you know, rent's climbing, economy's screwed. I sold one of them. I thought they'd get over it. I bent back down to the tank. Their eyes actually weren't red. They were gone. Just bloody sockets left, trailing threads of blood through the water. They grieve pretty dramatically, the shopkeeper explained. I straightened and got out my wallet. I think I'd like four neon tetras and three tiger barbs, please. As he went off to net me my fish, I lingered a while longer by the mermaids. When I could stand it no more, I tapped lightly on the glass. They darted off in all directions, their mouths stretched in silent screams.
College Square. First of all, it's not a fetish, it's a preference. Most guys have one. Maybe it's redheads or poet chicks with tight sweaters and little round glasses, or girls who remind them of their third grade teacher who was careless with her bra straps. Me, I like dangerous girls. Femme fatales, exotic spies from foreign lands, girls with knives who put you through your paces on the backs of their Harleys. I like being pursued by perilous women, and I don't mind if I get pounced on or even roughed up a little, as long as I get away in the end. I am neither proud nor ashamed of this. I just know what makes me tick. I watch them from across the street. The tawny-haired one sweeps the walk in front of her cafe, her eyes green as a traffic light saying, Go. When she pauses, puts a hand against the small of her back and stretches, her dress draws taut against her curves. Then she catches me watching. Her lips curl into a small smile and she goes back to her sweeping. One door down, another cafe, and here a woman with black curls that fall over her shoulders waters hydrangeas in a terracotta pots. She bends forward and water trickles from her watering can. They don't look much alike, these two witches, but I'm sure they're sisters, and not the kind who stir the same pot and feed the same cats. These are sisters who, perhaps, shared the womb, and were it not for the intervention of calming teas drunk by their mother, they would have strangled each other with their own umbilical cords. The broom stops moving, the water can stops trickling. The sister witches tilt their heads, both giving me questioning looks, and go inside their respective cafes. I choose the establishment of the tawny-haired one, because from where I'm standing, her place is on my left, and I read left to right. Through the doors I go, only to find that her cafe is disappointingly uninviting. Mismatched folding chairs are arranged haphazardly around wobbly tables. The prints on the wall are whatever was cheap at the mall poster shop. With a scrape of metal legs against yellowing vinyl floor, I pull out a chair and take a seat. The tawny witch is less attractive up close. Her arms are skinny, with thick blue veins pushing up the skin. And those once amazing green eyes, contacts surely, sit inside deep hollows. It doesn't matter. The aromas will keep me here. Warm, buttery scents with vanilla and light dancing over rich, dark coffee. My stomach rumbles, my mouth waters, my hamstrings tingle. Eat not the food of witches, warn my thoughts in an urgent voice of authority, like Ahab or a Scottish preacher. Eat not the food of witches. A croissant in a large drip, I say, swallowing. She sets a golden, pillowy croissant on a polystyrene plate, fills a paper cup with night, and sets both on my table. She tries to shake her hips as she returns to her place behind the counter. I bite into the croissant. Flaky crust gives way to soft wisps of pastry, soaking my tongue in a warmth that spreads to my chest and belly. Despite myself, I moan softly, and the tawny witch smiles now, a smile that softens the angles of her face and brings a glow to her cheeks. Her green eyes come to life. She's got me, I realize with a panicky intake of breath. Caught. Trapped. No escape this time. Why, oh why didn't I listen to Ahab? I will come here every day for the rest of my life. I will have no meals other than what she makes for me. Eventually, though, my plate is empty, even the crumbs gone, and I can see the bottom of my cup. And once more, the tawny witch is too pale, too stretched out. Her smile reveals a bit too much gum. So I put six dollars on the table and run out, her curses thrown at my back. Outside, I catch my breath, craving a cigarette. My heart jackhammers in my chest, and this is the part I like best, the light-legged dizzy buzz that follows an escape. Is this how Harry Houdini felt after throwing off straitjacket and shackles and bursting naked through the surface of a half-frozen river? 
What a great feeling. Nice going, Harry. But I need more. Only a few moments later, I find myself moving towards the cafe next door. Overstuffed chairs and throw pillows suggest long, rainy afternoons with steaming mugs and good books. The windows cast honey-colored light on warm wood floors. The black-haired one has been waiting. "'Sit,' she says. "'Tell me what you want.' I take the chair nearest the counter, nearest her. "'A croissant, please, and a large coffee. "'Cream and sugar?' I like the way her lips form the word cream. Not trusting my voice, I leave it at a mute nod. She brings me a plate ringed with small green leaves and a cup painted with night sky and stars. Then she takes a seat in the chair opposite me. When I bite into the croissant, she moves her legs and exhales. I chew. Hard, burnt crust gives way to something the texture of wood. I sip the coffee and get a mouthful of sour water and bitter grounds. As I eat and drink, the witch's lips part and her chest rises and falls. I squirm in my seat, tension gathering in my thighs. The awful taste of her food is no matter when she tilts her head back and shows me the exquisite long curve of her neck. For a moment, I even entertain the notion that I am seducing her. But one does not seduce a witch, not in her own café, not when eating her food. And soon I am in love with her, with her midnight forest of black curls, and her eyes, blue as glacial ice. And though I would be her captive lover, a pet of sorts, or a slave, I would not mind so much, because she has worked magic on my glands, and what is love but a product of pheromones and the promise of long, pleasant afternoons? Is that what I want? Long, pleasant afternoons? Better loving through chemistry? And, in the end, it is not. And I put down my plate and cup, and leave six dollars on the table, and run out the door, plugging my ears against her strange, angry, hissed words. I'm so good at this, this escaping thing. Two in one day. I am a young, virile, fleet-footed gazelle, and I'm still congratulating myself when I realize my legs are carrying me to a third door, one I hadn't noticed before, placed right between the two cafes. And that's where I go. Inside, the tawny-haired witch smiles and grinds coffee beans by hand. The black-haired one makes slow circles on a table with a polishing cloth. I have been in the houses of two witches, and I have eaten the food of two witches, and I have risked the ire of two witches. And today I have learned that I can resist witchcraft in matters of lust, and I can resist witchcraft in the matters of breakfast. But lust and breakfast? That's a pretty damn good trap. I close the door behind me. The black-haired one polishes, the tawny-haired one grinds. Then, their hands fall motionless, and the witches come toward me, reaching. Old Heights Maybe he's a retired heavyweight who owns a cigar-stained Italian restaurant downtown and still spars with the kids when he runs his youth boxing camp. Or maybe he's a cowboy actor who exaggerates his Texas drawl when he does his commercials for his Ford dealership. Possibly he's an old news anchor who emcees the annual Leukemia Telethon and does a radio show early on Sunday mornings. Every town has one. The old local celebrity who represents the people in a way an elected politician never could. Whoever he is, you can be sure he's a raconteur, that he's been entertaining people for as long as anyone can remember. People agree that he's simply the nicest guy in town, though there are some faded rumors about womanizing and some drunk driving allegations, but those happened so long ago, and anyway, they somehow make him human and better loved. 
Around here, for my generation at least, that guy was the Green Thunder. The Green Thunder was the marshal of the Settlers' Day Parade. The Green Thunder visited kids in the hospital. The Green Thunder judged the Daffodil Queen pageant. You remember that commercial campaign the city did? A guy throws his fast food garbage out of his car window. The kid walks up and he stares at the garbage and he stares at the trash can across the street. And the voiceover says, What would the Green Thunder do? I still think of that commercial every time I see litter in the street. The Green Thunder once had his cape pressed at my dry cleaner shop. Dropped it off himself, paid cash, and when I asked him for an autograph, he gave me that billion-dollar grin and got out an 8x10 glossy. He signed it, To Sydney, my dry-cleaning hero. Thanks, Green Thunder. Drew a little thunderbolt and everything. His dry-cleaning hero? It was the first time he'd ever been to my shop, and I hadn't even pressed his cape yet. He didn't have to do that for me, but that's the kind of guy he was. And look, I'm not defending what he said to that reporter. It was dead wrong. I think he was just trying to be funny, and that's how people talked in the neighborhood when guys like Green Thunder and me were growing up. When it comes right down to it, didn't he help a lot of people, no matter who they were? He didn't care if you were black or white or yellow or green. If you needed help of any kind, the Green Thunder was there. On the other hand, I understand why people got upset. My wife, she's Korean, and when we were driving cross-country on our honeymoon, some of the looks we used to get... I keep telling people the Green Thunder was more than a remark made in a moment of bad judgment. He was a real part of this city for a long time. They say he and that reporter had some history between them. They'd been friends back in the old days, but had a falling out of sorts. Something about a signal watch. Something trivial. Anyway. It's just sad. I was sweeping in front of my shop the day he left. I heard the boom, the bang, the sound of the sky ripping apart that people who grew up when and where I did had come to associate with hope, and I looked to the sky, and there he was. Not the fast streak of green across the morning blue. Just an old man, slowly passing out of view. He wasn't even wearing his cape. Some people get a little upset when they see his photo hanging on my wall. I've had once loyal customers stop coming in because I won't take it down. Heck, sometimes I want to take it down myself. What's the right thing to do? I don't know. I don't know what the Green Thunder would do. Carnival Park We knew there'd be trouble when the new balloon man showed up. Orange John had been working Carnival Park for as long as there'd been a carnival park, tying his balloon animals with rope-strong hands. He always had that faraway look in his eyes, as if expecting something to appear on the horizon. And one day, something did. A new balloon man. You have guys like Orange John where you come from? You know what I mean. Guys who do one thing in one place. Like the knife guy, or Mr. Rags, and Mr. Rags Jr., they do their one thing, and you can't imagine them having a life outside that thing, like a home, or a family, or a bank account. These guys make a place what it is, as surely as pigeon-crapped statues and old buildings with columns and stone lions out front. So there was Orange John near the war fountain in his oversized orange suit and bozo hair, nodding himself up a real nice stegosaurus. When up came the young balloon man... He was a skinny boy in a black t-shirt, rainbow vest, 
and jeans painted like all the sample chips in a paint store. His uninflated balloons hung from his waistband like little tongues, and he stopped a dozen or so yards away from Orange John. "'Jack Manicolors,' he said, tipping an imaginary hat. "'Orange John,' said Orange John, with a squint and a nod. And so it began. Manicolors was the challenger, so he went first. He took out a brown balloon, put it to his lips, and blew. It extended like a time-lapse video of a growing vine, curving in on itself before he pinched the spout, grabbed the far end, and made a series of deft twists and knots. The end result? An odd sort of elephant with a weird humped head and squat fat legs. Not terrible, but not a very good likeness. But then he took a white balloon from his waistband, and before we knew it, the elephant had huge curving tusks. A mammoth, then. A good one. A crowd had started gathering, and they ooed appreciatively around mouthfuls of hot dogs and soft pretzels. He handed the mammoth to a young boy who ran off, trumpeting mammoth sounds. It was Orange John's turn. He gazed up at the sky, as if searching the clouds for inspiration. Then, after a few moments, he reached into his breast pocket and took out a red balloon and a yellow balloon. He put both into his mouth and blew into them, his eyes distant, like a smoker deep in thought. When the balloons were inflated to his satisfaction, he grabbed them roughly and wrestled them into a red hawk with yellow eyes and talons. He held it aloft and gave it a toss. The wind caught it, and it sailed over the fountain, over the trees, out of sight. Many colors clapped his hands in silent applause, then went to work. One by one, he inflated about a dozen orange and black balloons, storing them under his armpit until he'd accumulated an unwieldy bundle. There was a flurry of rubber squeaking against rubber, and then before him in the grass crouched a life-sized tiger. He grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and tugged. It walked on articulated legs. The jaw fell open to reveal long fangs and a lolling tongue. It was a fine balloon animal. Orange John placed his palms flat against each other as if in prayer and bowed deeply toward many colors. From his pocket, he drew a number of black balloons, and when he was finished blowing them up, he panted, out of breath, his face red. With shaky hands, he made a spider and set it against many colors' tiger. The spider grasped the tiger in its legs and squeezed, destroying the tiger with small pops. Then it slowly scuttled back to its maker, exhausted and deflated itself empty. Manicolor's eyes went wide, and his mouth formed an O. But his expression of surprise wasn't genuine. He was mocking Orange John. Reaching to his waist, Manicolor's pulled out every green balloon he had, and when he seemed to be looking for more, Orange John took out a handful of his own and held them out in offering. But Manicolor's just sneered at him, and pulled more green balloons from the air until his sleight of hand had given him an adequate supply for his next sculpture. This one took a while. Sweat glistened on his brow, and his lips moved as though he were reading aloud as his hands did their work. His dragon reared up on its bulbous haunches, black claws gleaming. Its red eyes seemed lit from within, and from its great maw came long, sinuous twists of red and yellow balloon flame. Orange John didn't waste time acknowledging his opponent, for the dragon was lurching towards him. With desperate speed, he tied and twisted and nodded. The dragon was almost on him, and Orange John's lattice of balloon work had yet to take form. We could hear him release small grunts of pain and frustration as he worked. For the first time ever, we noticed the way his fingers curled, the knots in his knuckles. Orange John had arthritis. 
The dragon stretched its jaws wide, revealing more rubber flame. An orange John jumped back from his own animal. A large feline body with the head of a bird of prey and graceful swept-back wings. A griffin. Well chosen, we agreed among ourselves. The two animals leapt at each other, and for the next several minutes an epic battle raged above Carnival Park. Flashes of color, rubber squeaks drawn out into screams, tiny pops of injury. When the dragon of many colors floated back down to earth, half its jaw was missing. One of its bat wings hung limp, barely attached. But at least it was still recognizable. Not so for Orange John's griffin. Shredded bits of rubber rained on us. The contest was over. Orange John kept his back rigid with dignity, but he already looked half dead. Perhaps, long ago, he had humiliated an older, more fatigued balloon man in this very spot. Perhaps it was simply the way of things. Many colors offered his dragon to a little girl, but the little girl refused to take it. Tears streaming down her eyes, she crossed her arms and looked away from the younger balloon man. Then the rest of us exchanged glances, and we knew what was right. A giraffe, Orange John? Someone said. And after that, a big dinosaur with spikes, said someone else. Many colors looked at us, not understanding. But I defeated Orange John. I'm your balloon man now. We told him he'd never be our balloon man. Carnival Park belonged to Orange John. Orange John was this place. This place was Orange John. Many colors made a lot of noise. He never really wanted to be our balloon man anyway, he said. And Orange John's balloons smelled like cigarettes, which was true. And we wouldn't know a good balloon man if he blew a poodle up our asses. But it was no use. With more grumbling and curses, he left, going wherever balloon men with no parks go. Orange John didn't thank us. He didn't need to. He just began working on a beautiful, long-necked giraffe with spindly long legs, which was exactly what we needed of him. To tie balloons. To be here. To always be here. Those of us who live and work around Carnival Park had never asked for a champion. All we'd ever wanted was a good balloon man. The Strip My hand reaches for the toilet stall door, and he says, you ever hear of a zero room? Restroom attendants make me nervous. I've been going to the bathroom on my own since I was three, and I don't need help. Every city's got a zero room, he says. But it's never in the same place. Not from city to city, not from moment to moment. He sits over there on his little stool, his bottles of cologne gleaming in the spotlights over the mirror. The bright reflections hurt my eyes. They say zero rooms were built by the man who made all the cities. They connect places. Or, to put it another way, every door, every single one, connects to the same zero room. When you open a door, maybe it goes somewhere you didn't expect it to. Or maybe it goes to everywhere at once. Or maybe everywhere comes spilling through the door like a great tidal wave, and all the places behind all the doors smash into each other and get mixed up and cancel each other out, and it's the end of everything. He moves some of his cologne bottles around, as if they're chess pieces. Or maybe nothing at all happens. You never know. I stare at him a while longer, but he seems to be done with me. He arranges breath mints on a silver tray. 
I turn back to the toilet stall. With my hand hovering near the door, I flirt nervously with godhood. To paraphrase that famous tagline, there are eight million stories in the Naked City. This has been seven of the more unusual ones, courtesy of Greg's wonderful ability to turn the ordinary into the extraordinary, while keeping it grounded in the everyday world. And here we are at the end of another episode of Far-Fetched Fables. It's a pleasure each week to put together such wonderful stories. As always, thank you to the authors for giving permission to produce their work, and the narrators without whom we couldn't share these fantastic tales of fantasy. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but don't change it or sell it. If you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website, so please take a moment and give a little something if you can. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Until next week, be sure to watch out for life-or-death poetry jams, and watch your step as you bear your water to the river. Take care. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.